This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi guys, this is Phil Town for Rule One Investing, and we are here today without Danielle. I'm so sorry she's not with us. Um, yeah, she's still working through that COVID stuff. She's doing all right, but she's just... Um, had a bit of a cough today, so she's not able to kind of record. So don't worry about her, but she's she's getting better. Uh, just a long road back is all. So I'm kind of here doing this myself today, but um, and I miss her already because, you know, she's there to fill in the gaps when I'm sitting around going, what am I going to talk about next? But I thought what I'd do today is something that um, I haven't had a chance to do with you guys, and that's kind of to go over the the process and philosophy of investing uh, by one of the really great investors um, who's been out there for the last 20 years named Alan Meacham, who runs a fund called Arlington Capital. And Arlington is uh, one of the greatest return uh, funds that we've seen out there in a long, long time. Um, he did spectacularly well in 2008 when the market was going down. Everybody was really happy to like break even. Um, if they did that. And Arlington actually had a really profitable year. And he's been consistent about that while implementing what we would consider to be rule one values and rule one philosophy. Um, he's very, <clears throat> very focused portfolio, um, you know, 15 stocks or so. And, um, and just really a good philosophy. And I thought, what I'll do today is just kind of cover his philosophy and kind of discuss it a little bit. Um, <clears throat> and this comes about through a, a letter that he sent out to his investors in 2012. And Alan, if you're listening, which you're probably not, but if you are, or you hear about this, I hope you don't mind that I kind of go through this material with our students, because I think it's incredibly valuable for them. And um, second, I'm really sorry to hear that you're uh, retiring from the fund. Um, Alan just uh, put out the word that due to uh, health issues, he is pulling back and uh, no longer gonna run a fund. And I think part of that has to be, and I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth here, but uh, I've been through that process. And I'll tell you, part of it is just the, the stress of trying to meet expectations of investors, particularly when you get up to where he's gotten, which is um, built up a fund of well over a billion dollars. That's a big number. And it's really, really a, a, a lot of work to continue to, to have outsized performance, which Arlington's very famous for um, with that much money. So with that, let's dive in a little bit here to, to these, uh, these principles. So <clears throat> basically he says what we're looking for is what he considers a rare combination of business safety, um, an attractive price, and a clear understanding of the business that leads to a low risk and market beating return. So pretty straightforward, uh, coming straight from from Ben Graham, right? And and he says there's basically two rules of investing. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. And Alan says the second rule, I think, is even more important than the first. So it's really focusing on the idea that you're not trying to make money, you guys, when we're investing. The, the objective is to not lose any. 
And that means not that the stock price never goes down from where you bought it. Um, we have that happen on a regular basis. The point is that the value of the business doesn't go down from where you bought it um, and preferably stays well up above where you bought it because you bought it with a margin of safety. So not losing money means over a five to 10 year period, you don't have a permanent loss of capital. So the key to that is you do what Alan said. You get a safe business at a good price and make sure you understand the whole thing. So he says that um, to, they have really one goal in mind uh, when they're structuring their policies and philosophy of this, and that is to encourage rational decision-making. And that's what leads to really good returns, rational decision-making. So the research process that this good investor goes through is about trying to be very rational and very objective and not get into confirmation bias, not get into <clears throat> trying to be defensive about something where you start to think this is a good thing and then feel like you have to follow through on that and being very careful about staying well within your circle of competence. Um, a rational decision-making process means that you are aware, you're very objective about what you know and what you don't know. So I think that's that's really good to follow. Um, so he says, the first thing we do when we're going to try to be very rational about things is we adopt um, a mentality of a business owner who's buying for keeps. So Lee Lu says the same thing. We, we don't want to look at things per share uh, necessarily just because it gives us a bad habit of thinking that we're buying shares of a company. What we want to think about is that we're buying the company. So we think about it one way is to think, well, my uncle just gave me this company. What am I going to do with it? Well, the first thing I'm going to do with this is try to understand it so I know if I've got something that's worth keeping or if I should just get rid of it as quickly as possible because it's not a good business. So we think about that for every company we buy. Do I want to own the whole thing? Would, would this be a good company for me to own if it was the only company I owned? So he says, if we're going to buy for keeps, what that means is, we're thinking about the staying power of the business. We're okay. How how durable is the business? We're thinking about competitive threats. Again, this is do we have a moat here that that protects us against competitive threats, or are they tearing down the moat? And in more and more modern business, we see that the moat is very difficult to keep for a longer period of time. Businesses are being uh, sold out. They're they're going out of business faster today than they did 50 years ago. Um, information is transferred more quickly than it was 50 years ago. And when somebody is knocking out a really high rate of return, real high return on assets, real high return on equity, then other companies that are in that world are going to think, hey, we should move over into that business. You know, some conglomerate with billions of dollars doesn't know what to do with would look at the over and go, hey, that trucking business looks pretty lucrative. Let's go enter that business. So, you know, what are the competitors doing? Um, are they threatening us in some way? What are the economics of the business? Does it does it require economics of the business means does it require um, a constant input of capital and to replace um, all of the all the machines and equipment that we're using to do this business? Are we constantly having to compete on price in some way, or do we have mar big margins, big profit margins? Can we uh, can we grow the business without incurring debt? Can we grow it out of free cash flow? 
Those are the economics of the business. And then finally, comparing price to value. So you you guys know from listening to the podcast for a long time that we're all about figuring out the value and then working out the price. Or we're all about just finding a price that's really good, even if we don't know what the value is, other than to know that with a high degree of certainty, this company will be more productive in 10 years than it is today, and we're buying it super cheap. So we don't really have to nail down the value of the business per se, so much as to nail down a real big margin of safety price of a business that is worth substantially more than we're paying for it and will be worth much more than that down the road. So that's the idea of getting a good price, getting a margin of safety. Um, so he's, he compares his fund to what's normally out there, um, talking about what goes on on CNBC keeping or, or financial television, uh, keeping score of quarterly uh, beats where where that company had earnings expectations out there by the analysts and then it, it outperformed that, um, right, that it beat the estimates. He says, we, we just ignore all that. We're, we ignore financial models. We're oblivious to the consensus estimates. We don't think quarterly beats are germane to intrinsic value. Uh, we're just betting on on a company's fundamentals going forward into the future, not on investor psychology. In other words, Alan is basically saying, we're not counting on investors paying more for this company um, out of momentum, out of beats, out of good news. We're not counting on any of that. We're just counting on company fundamentals, buying at a big margin of safety and having those company fundamentals so obviously make the company worth more that the price will go up. Um, he says, first and foremost, we adopt the mentality. Oh, yeah, we did that one. All right. Sorry. Um, he says, we strive to be conservative and realistic in assessing our opportunities. Uh, we pay a close attention to our own limitations. Our own limitations. He said, while the revered margin of safety concept is frequently cited and often beneficial, in my opinion, it's prone to misuse. An old saying comes to mind. It's not the bad not the bad where are you at here oh shoot hang on there's page six here we go it's not the bad ideas that cause problems it's the good ideas taken too far that cause problems so he says basically you got to be really intellectually honest and and that means be a little in my view that means be intellectually humble when you start digging into a company you have to just remember you know you weren't the <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about myself here, particularly. I wasn't the smartest guy in the school, right? Not the smartest guy on Wall Street. Um, there's going to be a lot smarter guys who figure out stuff a lot better than I do. What I've got to be able to do is make sure that I'm smart enough to figure out this, whatever this is. If this happens to be, you know, um, let's say a real estate investment trust, a REIT, a REIT company, I got to be smart enough to figure that out. I've got to be able to, you know, if I've got issues that I don't understand, I've got to get a hold of people who do and they can explain it to me until I do understand it. If I'm not sure about management, I've got to get sure about management. Um, I remember Lee Lu telling a story about figuring out Timberline's management. He got on a plane and flew to the CEO's hometown and went to his church and asked people as they were walking out of church on Sunday what the integrity level was of this guy. <laughs> And then he went to his country club and asked the same questions. I mean, that that's intense, right? And that, that's like wild, wild man stuff. So 
I love that. And that's, that's all about being really careful. Um, you said that the value of a company is derived from what it produces for its owners over its lifetime. This is many years, often decades, right? And this supports a mindset of an investor that is calibrated toward longevity, not to what's going to happen the next quarter or even the next year, but longevity, five years, 10 years. And that means from Alan's point of view, it forces us to hone in on variables that are related to durability. What, In other words, there's a lot of stuff that goes into whether the stock goes up or down in the next quarter. Okay, what's going on with the Fed? What's going on with the market? What's going on with the economy, right? But what about what's going on for this company in the next 10 years? What, what would you look at there? What are the variables that are going on that we would need to be aware of about a, a company we're looking at to own for the next 10 years? If you're going to buy this company and, and run it, if you're going to buy a franchise at McDonald's, if you're, you're going to buy a small business down here in your hometown, what do you need to know? in order to own that business, in order to be willing to own that business and pay the price for that business. Well, the first thing you need to know is what's going to prevent somebody from coming in here and competing with me out of the blue? If I own a laundromat, what would stop somebody from just coming in and building a laundromat, a cooler one, a newer one, in a better location? What would stop them from doing that? And if the answer is not much, then that may need, that might not be our you know, do I want to own one business the rest of my life kind of a business? So we want barriers to entry. These are the moats, you guys. We want a barrier to entry. What would that barrier be? And of course, that's, I mean, I don't think Alan listed out here too much about what he thinks barriers are to entry, but we know from working with this for a long time that the barriers to entry are going to be our, our let's talk about our, our little, uh, our little, um, you know, our little dry cleaning store, our little whatever store we, we decided to buy. What would be a barrier to entry? Well, the, the first one would be that we have a really well-established brand. People trust us. They're going to give us their best clothes. We, we, can, we can do anything and we do it really well. We do it on time. People are really friendly there. Um, you know, we, we, we make sure we don't break your buttons. We don't tear your zippers, right? We have a brand that says we're super good and you're going to have to be better than our brand in order to really take business from us. So that might be one thing. Second thing would be that we have secrets. Now in the dry cleaning business, we probably don't have any, but what if we came up with some wonderful formula? So your clothes smell fresher um, when you get them and we never break a button. We never tear a zipper. We always get it right. We never shrink a garment, right? We never lose a garment, right? We have some secret way of doing this. Um, even better, we have such a secret that we can do it cheaper than anybody else. We have a price moat that we, uh, our costs of production because of our secrets are fabulously low. And if you want to compete with us, you're going to go out of business because you're going to do it the old way and we're going to do it our way, which is patented. So we have secrets that are patented and that gives us a low price, which you can't compete with. That, that's, that's a couple of wonderful moats there. What about a switching moat? Have we got some way to create a switching moat with our dry cleaner? Um, yeah, we could. We could have a customer mileage program, right? The more you use us, the cheaper it gets for you. Um, 
and we would do fabulous things for you. We would, we would, uh, I don't know, I'd come up with something. We, we would, you know, the clothes that are never picked up, we would uh, donate them to Goodwill in your name. I, I don't know, we'd something. We'll send you on a trip to, um, to Four Seasons somewhere if you've done so much business with us. We, we find a way to, um, the way that Ulta, Ulta has a, you know, like, I forget what they call these things, but, you know, a, a customer uh, appreciation program where you get credit for your purchases and that goes to additional purchases, which gets you an either bigger price mode. So we could implement that as a means of keeping you from switching so that when you switch over, so we would say like, as long as you keep coming in once every week, you stay in the program. If you don't come in once a week, then you kick, you lose the miles for that week or whatever. So that's a, that's a nice little switching mode. And then, you know, finally, we'd love to have a toll bridge mode where we're the only guys in town. So the way we would get that is we would go into the city or the county, probably the county, and we would say, look, you guys, we want to be the only dry cleaner in the entire county. We, we, we want to be it. Nobody else gets to have a dry cleaner by county ordinance here. Um, and the reason you might do that is because we uh, will be willing to be taxed heavily. I probably have to come up with something legal here. I don't know what it would be. But uh, we would like to become a utility version of a dry cleaner. And um, the, the reason for that is we'll give people the lowest price they could ever possibly get. Uh, there's no point in having other competition. And we will put convenience stores everywhere around and we will take care of the whole problem for dry cleaning. Probably you couldn't get that. But if you did, that would be a toll bridge moat. So you're looking for barriers to entry. You're also looking for the real concern that if this is a technology company, you've got an obsolescence risk that creative destruction is going to happen to you and your great product is going to go away. Watch out for that. Um, and let's see, what else? Bargaining power, right? Because of your position there, you can get lower, cheaper supplies, right? Walmart has huge bargaining power. So this is where you get the low cost of your of your products that you're selling or your service that you're selling. So bargaining power, that's often economies of scale. Um, value being provided to customers. This is part of the brand idea that you're giving people so much value um, that they just keep coming back. Like, what would that be for Coca-Cola? Well, the first thing is it's it's everywhere. That's awesome. Second, it's always the same, um, theoretically. Third, it has a taste that is just special to that, and and I can't get it anywhere else. All right. Fourth, they put cocaine in it, so I get addicted. No, I'm kidding. They, they only used to do that. Um, so you have that value being provided to customers, and then and then you have threats of any other kind. You have legislative threats to the coal industry, which are really wiping out the coal industry. You have legislative threats to the oil industry. You have the elect electric grid threats to the oil industry. So um, yeah, if cars all go electric, then that's a serious existential threat to an oil company because you won't need gasoline anymore um, for cars anyway. So this is uh, what he's saying. He's saying what's critical isn't next quarter's earnings or even next year's numbers, but rather the earnings over the next decade. That's what we're going to use to figure out the valuation of the business. And if the value takes place on, you know, kind of a shaky backdrop of qualitative of data or uncertain competitive understanding, 
you know, then your valuation is a shaky valuation and your perceived margin of safety can turn out to be a mirage. So don't get caught like that. That's super, super important that you really do know you know the business and you do know where you don't know. Know where you don't know and stay away from that. Um, in you see, short-term macro challenges are often a boon. So a short-term macro challenge would be a well blows up in the Gulf of Mexico. So that's a short-term challenge to all the companies involved in drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, maybe to all oil companies in general. So a short-term challenge is often a boon to the owner of a quality company because marginal companies will fade away. In other words, if you can't drill in the Gulf of Mexico and you don't have enough money to sit it out for nine months, which is what happened, then you're gone as a competitor, right? If uh, cotton prices drop uh, or accelerate to $2, $2 uh, uh, whatever it is, a pound or something, um, from, from 80 cents, then you're a t-shirt maker. You might be gone because you may not have the the ability to stick it out, right? So it it's paramount to understand that one of the great advantages of a wonderful business that Meacham is talking about is when the hits the fan, right? When it hits the fan, then your moat protects you and it does. And if you don't have a big moat company, then you're not protected. And that's where Warren Buffett says, you know, you don't get to see you swimming naked until the tide goes out. The tide goes out means a recession or that industry goes into a recession on, on a cyclical basis. That's the tide going out. And then you get to see who's swimming naked. So you want to have a company that is well protected when the tide goes out. And that is going to be the time when they start to make major market uh, benefits uh, to the people, who, to the companies that are really good at this. Said, I believe our biggest difference at Arlington from the average fund is that we have a framework of analyzing businesses like a long-term owner. And that allows us to buy long-term. And what allows us to buy long-term businesses is having clients, having investors who understand that. And that means we have been very careful at Arlington about taking very selected limited partners into our hedge fund. So, and this is not my hedge fund, but this is what he's saying that we, that Arlington has been very careful about taking in investors who understand all these terms that understand this kind of thing. And that's exactly right. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you from my own experience, you don't want to be running um, a fund where you have investors who don't get it. And that means you don't want to run a fund that has pension fund managers who don't get this. They're, they're going to be looking at you quarter to quarter, not over a five-year period because they're being observed over a quarter to quarter. So you end up not being able to take pension fund money. You have to take family money that really understands the long-term view. So that's pretty key. If you're thinking about building your own fund someday, be sure that you only bring investors in who understand how you're going to go manage their money. You said, we are a risk-averse fund looking for a low-risk layup type investment, right? Basketball terminology there, running down the floor, can't miss shot, right? So we're looking for a layup type investment. Other funds, if you're continuing, he continues this basketball analogy, are akin to a run-and-gun offense that is routinely taking low-percentage shots. Now, I don't know if Alan is keeping up with basketball enough to realize that it's the run and gun offenses that are kicking the butt of all the layup offenses. 
So maybe is maybe he's picking the wrong sport here for um, for an analogy. But the fact of the matter is that we should outperform the kinds of funds, the kinds of investors that are trying to perform on a really every quarter kind of basis. We're just going to take shots every quarter and we're going to hope they work out. We're going to be a momentum fund. We should do much better than that. So taking the sure thing in the long run should should work out better. He goes on with his basketball analogy. He says, we're like a basketball team playing without a shot clock. We just patiently wait for the layup and the slam dunk. Okay, fair enough. You take the shot clock off, you take maybe even the limits to the game off, and you just wait for those opportunities to go up and and put the ball in. The operation operates within the confines of a 24-second shot clock, and they're forced to fire off shots. And so the 24-hour shot clock, or 24, the 24-second shot clock would be um, the analogy for a one-quarter uh, result. You, you have to have a, every quarter, you have to have a good result. You have to have it at least as good as the market, or you're in trouble that quarter. If you have a couple quarters with that out with it, with you not being with the market or outperforming the market, you're in trouble and you could lose your job. So that's very much akin to, you got to fire it off. And I would say maybe not even 24 seconds because good teams get that done more like five seconds. You, you got to get the ball down the court over the center line and shoot. That's what the quarterly uh, analogy would be. Whereas the other team has all day long to work, work around and, and, and take the very careful shot. Um, he says, though we stand out for being different, we simply don't have the stomach to oper con operate conventionally in order to raise larger money, even though that equals larger paychecks, um, because we'd leave investors worse off for entrusting us with their capital. So I love that about him. Um, so there you go. He says, we can't promise great returns. We do promise to adhere to our unique policies um, that are beneficial to a rational framework for investing. And he says, and if I haven't uh, persuaded you so far about the importance of emotion and culture, then he says, let Warren Buffett do it. To in this is a Buffett quote, and I'll wrap up with this, you guys. To invest successfully over a lifetime does not require a stratospheric IQ, unusual business insights, or inside information. What's needed is a sound intellectual framework for making decisions and the ability to keep emotions from corroding that framework. That's so right on. So with that, you guys, I'll, I'll look forward to talking to you next week um, with Danielle in tow. Um, I'm sure that it's much more entertaining to have her around than me. So uh, we look forward to getting her back in here. And until then, um, send in your questions. We're going to do a lot more Q&A, so we want you guys to be more involved. Uh, fire your questions off to the Invested Podcast website, and I need Danielle here to tell me what that is. <laughs> and so... Do that, and if uh, and if, if by the way, if you have a question and you don't can't find that website, um, you can send questions to um, dang, where to? Well, you better send it to the invested website, so <laughs> do your best you can with that. Sorry, next week we'll have the correct answer about where you should send questions. And, um, and until then, you know, we're, we're struggling without Danielle being here, but I hope, hope you enjoyed this enough to uh, make it worth your time. Uh, Alan Meacham is a brilliant investor. Well worth listening to. If you can download his letters, go do it. Uh, Google Alan Meacham Arlington value letters and, uh, read them all. 
well worth doing. Until then, guys, time to go play. See ya. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.